Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, adapters. The Cato Institute visits America Adapts, and we talk about free market adaptation. So before we get started, I just want to acknowledge this is the 50th episode of America Adapts. Welcome to new listeners, and for those who have been listening from the very beginning, thank you. It's been a great journey traveling the world to talk to the world's best thinkers on adaptation. So first off, in this episode, I have Dr. Pat Michaels, director of the Center for the Study of Science at the Libertarian Cato Institute. It's a fascinating discussion. Dr. Michaels and I discuss the role of free markets and adaptation and what potential role the Cato Institute might play in this emerging field of adaptation. For any libertarians who are listening to the podcast for the first time, I hope you find this episode valuable. Dr. Michaels is not a typical guest, but as many of you have discovered, I want all of us in the climate change universe to be exposed to a wide diversity of voices. I think some of the more conservative think tanks have yet to make peace with the reality of climate change and its impacting their ability to influence the broader issue of adaptation. Dr. Michaels and I have this conversation, and I sincerely hope a think tank like Cato can begin to play a positive role in this emerging field. Also, stick around until after the conversation with Dr. Michaels for my takeaways on what we talked about. Okay, some housekeeping. First off, thank you to those adapters supporting America Adapts. We are now a nonprofit organization and accepting tax-deductible donations. Go to americaadapts.org and you can easily find the donate page where you can give one-time donations or better yet, a recurring monthly donation. For the price of a large cafe latte a month, you can support a podcast bringing you the best and brightest in the world of adaptation. I want to thank those who have already generously donated through the Flipcause donate page. Long-term support will ensure the podcast grows and has the resources to record on location and build out this platform for promoting this field. For foundations and corporate donors looking to learn more about the podcast, please contact me at americadapts at gmail.com. So future episodes, I am so excited about my next episode. I have on David Roberts, fame writer for Grist Environmental News and now with Vox. We have a sprawling, profound, and at times hilarious conversation about the media, climate change, and how David has approached adaptation in his writing. Also, I'm headed to the annual Landscape Architects Conference in Los Angeles in late October. I'm also doing my first live recording in conjunction with the DC PodFest in November. I'll be in a bar on stage in front of a group of science-loving millennials. I'll have more details on that event in the coming month for those in the DC area who might want to attend. Okay, and now let's talk free markets. Let's do this podcast. Hi, Adapters. Welcome back. On today's episode, I have on Dr. Patrick Michaels, the director at the Center of the Study of Science at the Cato Institute. Hi, Dr. Michaels. Welcome to the show. Hey, hi, Doug. Nice to be with you. Well, great having you on. And so I know the Cato Institute. It's a world-famous think tank, but I'm wondering if you could kind of briefly describe to my listeners, what is the Cato Institute? Well, the Cato Institute is the world's leading free market think tank. Our uh, main interests are limited government, free markets, and non-military adventurism. And we have a pretty good brand. The scholarship that comes out of Cato uh, is certainly on a par with major research universities, and we are competitive in that market. Well, I'm curious, too. So now, you know, we have different administrations and the different think tanks in Washington, D.C. play roles in policymaking. I mean, I don't really want to get into the politics of Donald Trump too much, but do you find like a group like Cato is busier during a Republican administration or during a Democratic administration? Equally busy, depending upon who's messing things up in town here. <laughs> okay. All right. So you're the head of the Environmental Policy Office, and please correct that if I'm describing that wrong. And I'm just curious, what is the overall mission of that office? 
Well, I am the head of the Center for the Study of Science at the Cato Institute. And the overall mission of that is to understand how the incentive structure of science can create systematic distortions in science. And climate change is an issue where this is rather obvious and rather interesting. Right. So that's, I think, when we're going to dig into some things. And so Cato employs scientists, and you're a scientist yourself. I'm wondering if you could maybe give a little bit of background of what your scientific history is. Yeah, I uh, majored in behavioral biology at the University of Chicago for undergraduate, master's in plant ecology. And then I went through two doctoral programs, passed qualifying exams at Chicago in, in plant ecology and then University of Wisconsin, which allowed me to define my own field which was called ecological climatology, uh, and that has served me very well. I wound up on the faculty at University of Virginia for 30 years, uh, and now I'm up here at Cato. This podcast is about adapting to climate change. I'm not really here to talk about the science much. There's other podcasts that do it. So I'm just curious, right. what is Cato working on in regards to adapting to climate change? Well, uh, it's our contention that people naturally adapt to climate change. Think about this. You certainly, you and I, certainly adapt to weather. If the forecast is that there's uh, a, a strong chance of rain, we take an umbrella. If the forecast is that there's going to be a big debilitating snowstorm, we probably stay home and get some beer and make some chili. These are adaptations to individual weather events. Well, climate is the summation of weather events. So by definition, people have been and will continue to adapt to climate change. Okay, and so there, I guess there's two parts to that. So people are your your notion that people will adapt to climate change, whatever the extremes might be. But then your role is like, what are some of the free market approaches to adapting to climate change? Right? I mean, the, you could have a big government response, sort of saying we need to divert all this money toward adapting, or are you getting into the weeds of like, no, there are free market solutions to it? Well, I think there are definitely free free market solutions to adaptation. And our governments don't really have a good track record when it comes to overarching technological policy. You know, the, the, the thing about market that's interesting is you're allowed to fail. And so approaches that don't work that might be continue to be espoused by a political process, they're thrown out by the market. It, it is very interesting to see. Now, here's a, here's a classic example. I believe it was 2003. <laughs> an essay I wrote uh, a few years ago called Fewer French Fried in 2006. There was a, a big, a huge heat wave in uh, south, the south of France in 2003. On a global scale, it was inconsequential. There was one blip on the planet of what we call unusually high uh, atmospheric thickness, which associates with extreme heat. And the number of people that died was uh, quite mind-boggling. There were other factors involved including the fact that everybody was on vacation in August in France, and they left their relatives at home in unair-conditioned homes. Well, that's key, because in 2006, three years later, there was another heat wave, and you could apply the models uh, for temperature, exposure, and death, and the number of deaths in the 2006 heat wave was dramatically reduced compared to the excess deaths that occurred in the 2003 heat wave. Well, what happened was that the French had, and I use the word in the past tense, the French had an aversion to air conditioning, a crass American invention, I'm sure it was called that. And then after 2003, maybe it wasn't such a bad idea. 
And so they went to Walmart. Walmart sold tremendous numbers of air conditioners beginning in 2004, and many fewer people died than would have been predicted by standard heat death models. So the French adapt, and this is what we do all the time. Okay, so were you able to kind of dig into the details? Was there any sort of government-wide subsidies for helping people? Oh, there, 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 there might have been, but here's a larger, more universal view of this. Back around 2003, Bob Davis from the University of Virginia and, and myself and a couple other folks started looking at urban heat-related mortality in the United States. Now, this is a very interesting concept, Doug, because as you know, Cities are warmer than their surrounding countryside because of the bricks and the buildings retaining heat and the surface roughness keeps them from uh, ventilating. So particularly at night, the, the temperatures go above what they are in the countryside. You don't even need global warming to warm up a city dramatically. In fact, some of the heat islands that we see, Washington, D.C. being one of the primary ones in the world, are several degrees already, and they are of the order of magnitude that you would expect for doubling carbon dioxide. Anyway, after that long introduction, here's what we found. We found that the more frequent heat waves become, and remember, they have to be becoming more frequent because the cities themselves are warming up. You don't even need global warming to do it. The global warming will give it a little helping hand. The more cities warm up, the more frequent heat waves become, and the less, repeat, less mortality there is. People always like to say this thing, well, you know, that's all well and good, but heat waves really affect the elderly and the young. So what's the city with the largest number of heat waves in the country by a reasonable definition? I'll give you two of them. Tampa, Florida, and Phoenix, Arizona. They have, in fact, the oldest age distributions in their populations of any American city. And guess what? They don't have any heat-related mortality. None. Zero. Because they're adapted to it. There is a city in the United States where heat-related mortality is going up. Only one major city that we could find. And that's Seattle, which has, on average, the coldest summers of any of our large cities. So as heat becomes more frequent in Seattle, I guarantee you that they're going to stop dying in increasing numbers and adapt to it. Okay, so you've made an argument for especially cities, and I'm from Sarasota, Florida, so I know, yeah, there weren't many people dying of uh, heat death in Florida. Okay, so you've you've argued these cities that have, been, I guess, have a history with heat. They've adjusted. There's not people dying of heat death. But what about developing countries? I mean, climate change is an issue. It's a global issue. Are, you're, you're, what's your what's your point, and I guess how would you sort of project what you're arguing in regards to these states or these cities that have adjusted and you don't see these heat deaths in areas that aren't going to have the resources? Every home in India is not going to be able to get an air condition. What what are your solutions? What's Cato's solution? Well, my, my solution number one is to take a look at Delhi. Before the monsoon comes in, in May, the effective temperatures in Delhi are the highest of any urban area that I know of in the world. I mean, their, their temperature before the monsoon regularly goes to 110 degrees Fahrenheit with dew points in the 80s. That's almost as mind-boggling as some of these places on the Red Sea. But do we see massive heat-related mortality in Delhi, even in these extremely hot spills? The answer is no. Now, they're not adapting 
with air conditioning. They're adapting by other means. And by the way, as India develops economically, air conditioning is becoming much more common. Uh, and their plan under the Paris Accord, which uh, I'm sure you're aware of, their plan under the Paris Accord was to actually increase emissions at a higher rate than if they had gone on what's called business as usual. So they are on a crash course of increasing the electrical availability in the country, probably for a number of reasons which are related to productivity. You know, people with 110 degrees Fahrenheit and a dew point of 80, they're not the most active things on the earth. Well, you wrote a paper on this whole subject, especially with the heat and it's uh, climate change, heat waves and adaptation. And I just I, I want to clarify sort of your hypothesis of that is that to mitigate against these threats. And we're talking about heat here is like even if climate change wasn't happening, they would be doing it. And climate change might actually be a catalyst to lessen heat deaths. Yes, that, that's correct. And the old Chinese proverb change equals opportunity. It does. And okay, and so here's this is heat related issues, and so climate change has a much broader spectrum of impact. So how would you apply that sort of hypothesis to like sea level rise? How would you just sort of assume that there will be this adjustment within these communities? Well, I, I'm not assuming it. I know it, and if you look at the data, it's stark. A very, very, very poor country, Bangladesh, at the time it was East Pakistan, had a Category four, I believe, tropical cyclone. That's what they're the name in that part of the world for hurricanes in the 70s. And it killed between two and three hundred thousand people. That's a lot of dead people from a tropical cyclone. It's very low lying and much of the country was inundated about 30 years later. And a very similar storm hit Bangladesh. And what happened? Number of deaths was between one and two thousand. So a two order of magnitude decrease caused by adaptation in a poor country. What happens when you have these weather or climate related disasters, Doug, is the political process gets pounded. I, I saw a wonderful example of that in Chicago when I was in graduate school where there was a huge snow, a large number of very crippling snowstorms. And the mayor at the time, I believe it was Michael Bolandic, they didn't have enough L train, elevated railroad train cars uh, that were capable of working in the snow, getting the pickup shoes to pick up the electricity. So they decided that they weren't going to stop, stop. They didn't have enough passenger space. And of course, they decided they weren't going to stop in the black neighborhood. Well, what do you think happened to Mr. Bolandic in the next election? He got barbecued, and rightly so, I might add. And now Chicago adapts very, very well to snow-related emergencies on their rail transit system. Okay, so with the Bangladesh example that you used, I obviously don't know enough about those specific items, but I assume, and again, I want to keep coming back. I'm familiar with it. It's like 220 million people in a country the size of Wisconsin. It's just insane, but I'm just... I, I want to come back to you're from the Cato Institute. There's this free market approach to adaptation versus like, is there a big government approach? And so in Bangladesh, I can't right. speak to what you just described as the fewer deaths in the second event. Was that due to government policies? Did the free market come along? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That, that was definitely due to government policies. OK, uh, I, I don't have the specifics at hand, but well, then if it's if, none, I'm sorry, go on and interrupt you. It's nonetheless adaptation. 
And I would think that if the government did not intervene, that there probably would have been some concomitant entrepreneurism uh, that would have filled in. Here's the fact of the matter. This is this will shock you. Okay, shock me. When we wrote this paper on urban mortality, Bob Davis was the senior author. And I said, Bob, why are we sending this in? All we're saying is people don't want to die. I mean, how you know, how profound is that? And then a year later, he walks into my office and said, you know, that paper you thought we shouldn't have sent in. It received the climate section paper of the year award from the Association of American Geographers. So the notion that people don't want to die and act on it for some reasons is, is considered worthy of a prize. Doug, don't you think it's obvious? Well, I mean, I think we're in quite a bit of agreement in that I think, especially in developed countries that the longer term issue of climate change versus the shorter term response to heat waves or to flooding, we will adapt and we will make adjustments. And I don't think there'll be large scale deaths here. And so, yeah, I think we're in agreement there. It's more of uh, I'm just curious as as the the policy shop at Cato, when you look at adaptation, what you're seeing now, it's a relatively new field in the last 10 years. The government, be it state, local, or federal government, what kind of funding are, what kind of rules and regulations are we going to put in place to help these communities adapt? And I'm just curious, has Cato really dug into that? Oh, yes. We have looked at large literature, and we're just citing United Nations numbers here. The net GDP per capita in today's underdeveloped world will be higher in the year 2200 than it was in the industrialized countries in the base year of 1990, all of them, and several times higher. Uh, here, here's, here's a number for you. In today's developing countries, net GDP per capita, after accounting for global warming, will be more than 10 to 62 times higher in 2100 than it was in the base year of 1990. These countries are going to have economies that resemble the United States in the year 2100. And unless all these economists are wrong, and I'm telling you, what we're looking at here is United Nations data from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, it's kind of hard to argue against that. Okay, so your, your argument here is as these countries undergo economic growth, their ability to adapt will increase. And you know what happens when people become more affluent? This, this we saw in the United States. There is literally a demand for environmental protection and adaptation um, to their societies. This is, again, this is what happened, I think what happened in Bangladesh, and I think it could be done privately too. But let's just say the nature of this this discussion here is America adapts. America certainly adapts, and the world adapts also as it becomes more affluent. So when a certain threshold is passed, and it was passed in the United States in the late 1950s and early 1960s, people start to demand environmental protection. And it happened in Germany and, and Europe a few years later. It's related to a certain critical level of GDP per capita. And if you look at the numbers projected for the 21st century around the world, that's going to be exceeded pretty much everywhere. So you can expect a much cleaner world well, by the year 2100. Would I be wrong instead of assessing? I look at the progress, the environmental history of the United States, all the environmental legislation in the early 70s, the cap and trade, I think it was in 91. Was Cato in support of all those efforts as you're describing that as you – Cap and trade for carbon dioxide. No, well, cap and trade for uh, it was, was sulfur dioxide. Remember back in '91 when George Bush Senior sulfur dioxide. That yes. was for the acid. That's what I'm yeah, talking about. Well, I think in general, 
those type of programs are viewed as more market-based because the cost of a permit goes up as emissions go up. And so there is a market incentive, admittedly, you know, codified by U.S. code, U.S. law. But that's generally thought to be a better way, a more efficient way to deal with environmental externalities. And sulfur dioxide certainly resulted in some pretty obnoxious air pollution than a command and control program. And that's the current problem is we have command and control via the clean power plan. And what we really should be doing is letting the market work. You know, I'll, I'll make a prediction for you. OK, and, and I may be completely wrong, but I got a number of years of data that show I'm looking good right now. Despite Donald Trump saying we don't do Paris emit carbon dioxide emissions in the United States in terms of tons of carbon dioxide emissions released into the atmosphere will drop here more than they will drop any place in the world over the course of the next 10 years. You know why? Because market forces are substituting natural gas for coal and natural gas's carbon dioxide intensity is only about 40% that of coal for electrical generation. In other words, you only get 40% of the CO2 emissions for every megawatt hour you get out of the plant. And it's economically makes sense because somebody who didn't want to save the world, who just wanted to make a lot of money, some people push forward major advances in directional drilling and hydrofracturing. And now it turns out that we are the world's largest energy producer from fossil fuels. Who would have thought that? And who would have thought it would be natural gas? That's why we have to be careful, by the way, Doug, in, in talking about the future. If this were 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago, and you asked me, well, you said, well, natural gas is really expensive. It looks like it's really scarce. And all the experts say we're running out. And I said to you, well, the experts are not correct. Uh, we have hundreds and hundreds of years of it beneath our feet. And all we have to do is break rocks. You'd say you got rocks in your head, bud. But that's the way technolo technology evolves and people adapt. What's not to like? Well, I think you, you have environmentalists on two sides of that. I think you know, the, what is the famous quote is like the Stone Age didn't end because they ran out of stones. And I think a lot of people argue it's like, well, uh, we agree that there's a lot of oil in the ground. We agree there's a lot of natural gas. And I'm sure some people argued against that. But the goal is to avoid getting that up into the atmosphere. And that's how policies should be sort of designed. So uh, I, I'm not going to argue that, oh, we're not going to find these resources. They keep drilling into the oceans and such. They'll find it. But we want to keep it down there. So I want to give you a hypothetical here. So you look at what happened with Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and the, the response mm -hmm. was a massive influx of government funds to rebuild that city, to rebuild the levees. I'm just curious, do you think we should have done what we did there? I mean, is there a different approach? Is there a free market approach? Should we have just let New Orleans fester and sort of die? I mean, what would... Well, I don't think you could, I don't think you could do what should have been done, which is, yeah, parts of it could be firmed up, but it's just really not a great place to have a city. Firm up what you can, but, you know, in a way, encourage migration, and that, yeah, that's going to cost a lot of government money, because it's going to be really hard. I mean, Katrina, Katrina was a weird storm. It was a big, big storm. It wasn't all that powerful by the time it got to New Orleans. 
but it had a huge storm surge in it, and that's what caused the problem. It's hard to think that that's not going to happen again. Uh, and yes, there will be less death and destruction because it will have been adapted to by the government. But I think there's probably a more efficient way to do this. Well, then what is the role of government? And that's, I want to pivot to that. You're, just your own opinion. I'm from Florida, and I, I, I'm – I follow a lot of the sea level rise conversations, and so people are going to have right. to abandon the coast. And so what is the role of government, if any, to help people do that? And if they stick around too long, I mean, if some of the sea level rise models have six feet, seven feet, some of the more conservative ones are three feet, which would still be catastrophic for Miami, should the government dedicate resources to helping these people move if they wait too long? And I, and I, I mean, I of, of the mind that we should provide an infrastructure to help make that happen, but from a Cato Institute perspective, how do you respond to like the migration of people away from the coast? Well, first of all, sea level rise, mean sea level rise, takes place over quite some period of time. And you see adaptation to it even when you don't think you're adapting to it. There are lots of places on the East Coast where this is happening. So uh, having said that, is there a role for government in helping people adapt to sea level rise. I think that depends upon the case. I have a, actually a running disagreement with my colleagues here at Cato. I, I am of the belief that well, libertarians tend to say, you know, the purpose of government is to provide for the common defense and to foster, to, to not interfere with individual freedom and markets. So I make the claim, well, that there's a fine government function. I think a national hurricane center, a group of very highly trained professionals dealing with a very dangerous situation. That sounds to me like a, a role for government. It sounds like the common defense. A lot of people don't agree with me in this building about that one. But with regard to natural disasters, there's obviously a role for government. Or let me change that. With regard to disasters in general, there's obviously a role for government. Yeah, and I guess when it comes to migrating from the coast, and you know, I, I don't want to get into the science of sea level rise. I there's all sorts of, I, I think I come on the other side of things, whereas I think the science is probably pretty sound on what they feel is coming. I don't want to have the d debate. Oh, sea level will rise. I don't want to have the debate uh, of like the extremes. Like, is it two feet? Is it seven feet? I mean, those may, those are huge policy differences. If it's seven feet versus two feet, but I mean, Cato, I just I think it's fascinating that you know the free market approach to adaptation. I think there's lessons to be learned there. And here, like here's for example, I was digging around on Cato and I found one of your colleagues there, Ike Bannon. He released a paper actually just I think a couple of weeks ago, reforming the national flood insurance program. This is a huge issue, mm -hmm. and I think. Free it market is. folks probably have a lot more in common with environmentalists on this topic than. Oh, absolutely. But, Why should we subsidize your building in a place where you're going to get washed away and then we'll help you build it again right. anyway, even though nobody else will insure it at and that So, rate. Mr. Bannon, or I don't know if he's Dr. Bannon, but Mr. Uh, is a doctor or uh, uh, Ike Bannon, in his paper as I went through it, there wasn't a single mention of climate change, of droughts or flooding events or sea level rise in any of this paper, but if you go through his references and you go to those references, those papers do mention those things. And I'm just curious, why did he exclude potentially one of the biggest drivers of these flooding events? And why isn't, I mean, to me, I would love to see Cato. There are local planners out there that would love to kind of get this kind of information. But if you're not even acknowledging this giant elephant in the room, I mean, why is that? Well, uh, one of the things that there is around here is a lot of compartmentalization, which is unfortunate. 
And if people tend to be in silos, there's not a, not a lot of, of cross work. And I, I am very vocal that we should be doing more of that. I would, if I were the person in charge of uh, Bannon's manuscript, oh, it's Obe Bannon, right? Bannon, Ike, Ike Bannon, Bannon. Ike Bannon. And the, and the paper was called Reforming the National Flood Insurance Program. And as I went through it, I'm, it was really a lot of interesting material, yeah. but that I kept thinking, why isn't coastal flooding and climate change and future models? And I know Kato might disagree on what some of those models might be, but this could be a very informative paper. And some people are going to dismiss it outright if they feel like, well, wait a sec, you've ignored this issue that we're trying to incorporate into our planning process. And it just seemed like a missed opportunity for me. Is it more of a political thing because you didn't want to acknowledge climate change? That's that's my no. beef there. Uh, I is uh, is this. Straight down the line, economist and good lord, his University of Wisconsin. Huh, how about that Badger probably just doesn't didn't get into his wheelhouse. You know, it would have been. I think it would have been cool if 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 he had come to me or I had gone to him and said, "Hey, we we should put some climate change stuff in here because we did address this in a paper we did on a carbon tax, and so it's we're not." afraid of going into the climate change well, issue. I, I think his paper will be referenced quite a bit, but my point is that I think there's a lot more people that would have, this would have come out based on a lot of the ground that he covered. Had he acknowledged it, had he, he talked about that issue because people are starting to do their adaptation planning and they're desperate for this sort of policy information, and especially the national flood insurance with all the chatter that's been going around for the last few years not including climate change is yeah. this threat. And again, Cato could argue the degrees of threat. If you're not wanting to be on the catastrophic side, it would have been just, I think, a landmark paper. And it just came out a couple of weeks ago. And maybe he, he'll hear this and he'll correct me. And he'll, I mean, I felt like I went through it pretty closely. And I'm just like, where is this? Where's the coastal flooding in regards to uh, this reforming of these programs? And it wasn't in there. Well, you know what? I should go chat with them, and maybe we can do a revision or something well, like if you that. Chat, I'll look at it again, too. If I if I was completely off, but, I mean, I felt like I went through it. I even did a search afterwards. I'm like, did I miss it? I didn't search for climate change. Did not show up in a, a search of the article. And, again, his references had plenty of FEMA papers and all those kind of papers that had references to climate change, and it felt like, was this excluded on purpose? And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it just, again, Cato – and that's part of the point I want to have you on is that I don't agree with Akito's approach to a lot of things. I don't think the free market's going to solve all our problems. But I think Akito, especially in the 90s, I heard from Cato all the time. I just felt like it was showing up in many debates. And then as climate change has come up, I mean, I know it's your business, so you're hearing it, but it's just it's not even coming up. And so those environmental conversations, even though people might not agree with it, they were still voices of influence. And I'm not seeing that as much. And I think an adaptation, huge opportunity for Cato. Oh, I think there there's a lot of truth to that. And we will presumably be doing more of this. Yeah. And so, uh, again, it's just, it, there's a whole like you had a whole section on climate change adaptation at Cato. I think you would you'd be shocked how people would gravitate toward that. I mean, if there's I think things have to kind of get aligned with you and I probably don't agree on the science of climate change. Um, there's a spectrum and I don't want to say me and you. You're you're a PhD scientist, but you know what I'm talking about. There's different positions. There are different yeah. syntheses of it. I I am thought to be one of the principles uh of the so-called lukewarm synthesis on climate change, which means that human beings have an influence on climate. Uh, carbon dioxide does warm things up, but it looks like sensitivity has been overestimated. 
And that that creates a whole different suite of policy responses than a hyperwarm synthesis on it, to say the least. And so, again, I'm tied in pretty closely with Florida. In South Florida, they have this four-county compact where they're dealing with climate change and adaptation. They're devoting a lot of resources. The mayors are involved. And if they wanted to kind of get a different kind of voice, if someone from Cato could be part of those discussions, you know, they talk about real estate markets. They talk about coastal resilience. I mean, is there someone? Would it be you that could weigh in in, a, I guess, a positive way into those conversations? Or is Cato there yet? Oh no, I'm I'm sure that I could do that, and uh, they would. I'm very data driven, and I think the actual observations versus model projections argue for the low end. Now you need to ensure against a higher end, because but you need to set to to say at what point is a response to an extremely low probability event taking away resources that we should be applying to more likely probability events. And that's a decision that, that is a political decision, to say the least, and an economic decision. It's a fascinating thing. Well, I, I grew up in Sarasota, Florida, which is on the West Coast. And what's interesting about Florida, and I thought it could yeah. be a useful lesson for climate change planning, is that every coastal town and even interior towns, governments – dedicate resources to hurricane plannings. But if you look at some of the models and the yeah. likelihood of a hurricane hitting Sarasota, it is extremely low. And yet they dedicate millions of dollars to this because... The- well, that, you know, that is a very good question. The West Coast of Florida, Tampa, for example, seems to have a way of just getting missed. And it has to do with the geometry of, of the Florida Peninsula with respect to the warm oceanic waters. Uh, and the fact that a storm, a strong storm on the Florida West Coast is likely to have its inflow circulation altered uh, by the surface of the land. So all, the only storms on the West Coast that seem to really do big damage have to be very small. Like I believe it was Hurricane Charlie somewhere around 2000. And what year was Charlie? 2005 was when all those hurricanes hit, like five of them hit. Yeah. The slow moving ones that just flood the, the coastline, they don't even have to hit. Those are the ones that do the real damage to the West Coast. But I, I guess my point is that you have all these coastal communities that are in all likelihood never going to be hit in a big way like Miami will. But they're still dedicating these resources because they have to plan for those worst case scenarios. And that's back to your point. If it can, if it can, be, demonstrated, if it can be demonstrated that the worst case scenario is extremely, un- extremely unlikely and I don't think you can make that demonstration, but you certainly would temper your expenses on that, to say the least. Um, city of Tampa, I would wonder what their worst case scenario is, because it's very clear that West Coast Florida hurricanes generally are not as severe as East Coast ones. Yeah, but you're going to have mayors that are they're not going to be caught flat footed saying, oh, we didn't plan properly for these hurricanes. And so they're going to dedicate the resources to it. And that, I think, is what you're going to probably see with adaptation. A lot of funding potentially for for impacts that might not be as bad as they think, but uh, they're going to get geared up. So the issue of the Cato Institute and the role in adaptation planning, and as you can tell, I'm, I'm very interested because I want to see different voices coming in and weigh on this. And I'm just curious, at Cato, even the process, you have the science shop that you're the director of, but you have young libertarians, young researchers. How do you think you will bring them into the fold to kind of talk about these issues? Or is there an active effort 
to bring young libertarians to start thinking about climate change adaptation? I would think that would be the case uh, simply by the nature of the philosophy of the individuals. And there should be, I think, a healthy debate on the desirability of political uh, public intervention versus private intervention, particularly in the world of things like the hurricane. I think that they're a fascinating test case. And uh, as you alluded to earlier, the debate about what should have been done about Katrina rages on, to say the least. We need to have more of those debates. And, and I guess, and I don't know if this is raging Cato why, but the, the notion of climate change, there's the two issues that you've already acknowledged. Is climate change happening? Are humans partly or completely responsible? I don't want to talk about the spectrum of that. And then what do we do about that? And so I, I'm curious, like, it seems to me, Cato, and you have groups like that, that it's still on the fence that climate change is even happening. And does that sort of influence your ability to sort of make that next step of like, okay, we are, ne- we, we acknowledge it's happening. And I you know you've sort of explained your position, but I'm saying Cato wide. How do we influence adaptation policy going forward if we're not even sort of saying, okay, this broader issue of climate change is a problem? Well, I think that whether it's a problem depends upon what you think of the data. I uh, just, put something out, I think it was last week, here's a little little thing that appears is going to happen. It appears that the world is going to meet the aspirational goal of the Paris Agreement, because there was a mistake made in the calculation of the net allowed warming under the Paris Agreement, and uh, if you correct for that mistake, the Paris Agreement really is about the year 2100. It's not about an infinite future. The goal of the treaty is to keep the net anthropogenerated warming to two degrees C or less. And I think you can do the calculation with natural gas spreading throughout the world and other efficient technologies. And I have a feeling that we're going to make that. One of the leaders is going to be the country that's not in the agreement, which is the U.S., but- Independent of Paris, we still are warming and we're still going to have to adapt to that. How does Cato influence the policy decisions? And let's go to that extreme end that Cato completely disagrees that climate change and the warming is a major issue. That still doesn't negate the fact that all these communities, state governments are dedicating resources, changing laws and rules to adapt to climate change. How do you become part of that? I would have to look at individual cases. Uh, I know that North Carolina uh, used some extreme and unrealistic numbers in their coastal management program. Uh, I was one of the contributors to that. At least I got heard. That's probably happening in many locations around the country. And it would be very interesting to take a critical look, which I had the resources to do it, at everybody's hurricane adaptation plan and to see exactly what's involved in it. But it does go back to this, to say the least. It goes back, Doug, to this notion that we should not be incentivizing people to build expensive homes in places where they're likely to get washed away by a hurricane storm surge. And somehow that is just strikes me as remarkably irresponsible. If they want to build in a hurricane prone place, let a private insurance company charge them what needs to be charged, which is going to be a lot of money. That's an example of an adaptation that should occur and get the government 
out of creating incentives that literally disincentive true adaptation to climate change. If you have an incentive that allows someone to rebuild in a a risk-prone area, what would you say to providing an incentive to help someone move away from that area? Is that a good use of government funds? That's an interesting question. I'd have to look at the individual proposal and see exactly what was being offered uh, what I guess my point is, it's not necessary, I think, to do that. Probably the best thing to do is to just say, well, okay, now pay for your own insurance. And if you can't afford it, sell your house and let the next guy who buys it pay for it. But, the I mean, insurance. the government would say that. That was that. That would mean. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. That would mean that that de facto is moving a person away from danger. The government's not making it happen. But if the the government is not subsidizing that move, it is merely saying we're out of we're out of the the coastal flood insurance business and it's going to be privatized. And if you can't afford it, move inland. So it it doesn't require a government resettlement program. It requires a non-government program. or a, a program that is no longer. But you a have to acknowledge program. it. Let's say the situation that landowner it wants to sell because they recognize the risk and they don't want to keep paying the insurance payments, and yet the price of their house has collapsed because the next buyer kind of recognizes the same situation is going to apply to them. And so, yay for the market! Shouldn't have built there in the first place. Disincentive caused by the flood. But Twenty-five insurance. years ago, the notion of sea level rise wasn't a factor when they bought that house. Are they to blame for that? Uh, no, they're not to blame for that. But the fact of the matter is an extreme hurricane with or without sea level rise creates a massive storm surge. And that threat was is always there everywhere from probably uh, southern New England all the way to Brownsville, Texas. We have more hurricane or tropical cyclone prone beach, highly developed than any other place on earth. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I'd love to send you a link to it if you had a chance to kind of dig into it. I had Christopher Fulvell, who's an adaptation reporter for Bloomberg News, and he talked about this government buyout program based on Hurricane Sandy, and this was in New Jersey, and it's a huge chunk of money. It's like $200 million, and his articles go into how these communities are struggling because they don't want to break up people living in these coastal areas. These are their homes, and yet the government has this money, and it's going to pay them really nice market value for these homes, and they are having trouble finding And I forgot the name of it, and I can send it to you, but I'd be curious. Yeah, please please, please do send it, Bob. Yeah, I want to have a look at it. It's a government like program, fun. and you, I would be curious your thoughts on, like, okay, this is a complete waste of money, or this is the best way to deal with the psychology of people not wanting to leave these high-risk areas. But anyway, it was a, it was a fascinating read. So, but, but they are being paid yeah, to leave, but it's right? Government funding, and so I, I, my point is like, would you agree with it? Well, why don't we just, why don't we just stop subsidizing the rebuilding of them? Yeah. How about that? <laughs> well, I think a, that goes back to, to that national flood insurance. We don't need any government money to to do that. Well, governments want to restore community. Hey, listen, I'm not arguing with you on a lot of these things, but you know, it's just a reality. And so, is it a better use of government funds versus like allowing people to stay versus like we're going to do this one-time buyout? And to me, that's a better use of federal funds if they're going to be spent anyway. Color me for saying you can accomplish the same thing by spending much less government money and uh, privatizing the flood insurance market. Republican or Democrat. If it's local, they're going to be there wanting to spend that government money, and that is just a – that's like gravity. It's a reality. I mean, that's you can't 
anyway. <laughs> well, it's a reality that we try and change, but I'm sure not very successfully. Well, Dr. Marcos, I sort of want to wrap that. This has been a fascinating conversation. I feel like maybe I could come back and have another conversation with you six months from now or a year from now, if maybe some other research that you're doing. I, I think this is an ongoing issue, and I hope it's something you dedicate. Well, I, you know, I've actually published in the referee literature on hurricanes. If we get a big hurricane, it would be interesting. Well, to talk. just and if as you dig more into the issue of adaptation, this will be a generational issue, and how are policies respond? changing and you know is kato going to be along for the ride for that i'll be curious if that happens so yeah let me see what you got for me okay uh so do you have any i have a couple questions but any any final thoughts just any if people are interested in learning more about what you're doing at kato or just kato in general uh www.kato.org we have a pretty substantial website and you can sort through it by issues or individuals uh you will find that that uh, we do a lot of work and uh, are rather highly cited. I think the last study that I saw, in terms of efficiency, meaning a number of new citations per dollar budget, Cato was number one think tank on the non-liberal side of the street. Well, what happens with every new administration is that the think tanks kind of get ch- cherry-picked. So it, are there a lot of people leaving Cato to go work in the Trump administration? I can think of okay. one. Yeah, there may be there may be others, but I... I can only pinpoint one. All right. So final question. I ask this of every guest. If you had a recommendation of someone else I would have on the podcast, who would you recommend? Oh, boy. I would like you to have a proponent of the federal flood insurance program on and to ask that proponent, wouldn't it be more efficient to get out of that program and people will move out of the way that can't afford the real insurance cost? and have the private market pick up the real insurance cost, which is going to be much more than the government uh, expense, or the government bill, rather. It's going to be much more. No, that would be very interesting, hearing those sort of arguments and pushing back on some of the, the I guess, their baseline positions. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. So I, I'll do some homework and try to find someone. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure Chris Christie's got somebody out there. Okay. Maybe get Chris Christie on. He'll be free pretty soon. <laughs> That's very bad. Oh no, I mean his his term his term runs out in, in I think what January or something. So are they? Yeah, yeah, it? he's yeah, and I don't think he's even running. So he's two terms, and I think he yeah he's out. So yeah, uh, it wasn't okay. it wasn't dissing. Well, speaking of the beach, he had a lot of beach to himself <laughs> a while back. He looked nice and tan for that next press conference. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. All right. On that note, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate your time. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I think. Hey, Doug. Please let, me, please let me know when it's going to appear so that I can, can send a copy. Oh, of the definitely, for sure. And thanks again. All right. Have a good day. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap to this episode. Thanks to Dr. Pat Michaels for coming on. Although you might not agree with much of what Dr. Michaels said, I hope you learned something about how libertarians are approaching or not approaching adaptation. They have a role to play. It just sounds like they don't realize it yet. Some takeaways from my conversation. Dr. Michaels is a complex figure, and I think many of you know his work more on the climate side of things, and I think you would disagree with what he's doing there. But regarding adaptation, Dr. Michaels seems genuinely interested in playing a positive role in this field. My sense from Cato and its website is that Dr. Michaels is an anomaly. It seems like a waste that a younger generation of free market thinkers are probably caught up in the climate denial that's so prevalent in conservative circles. They should be directing their intellectual energies for generating market solutions on the broader issue of adaptation. 
There was a time when the Cato Institute actually influenced progressive policies. Liberals in general might not agree with their overall approach with free markets, but there was certainly some stealing of ideas. That's not happening now regarding climate change policies. Adaptation planning will happen at the local, state, federal level, and in the private sector. Does Cato want to play a constructive role in influencing the policies that are now being generated? That remains to be seen. Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps and ask to join and I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear insider info on the podcast and to see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. I love hearing from you guys just to say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Seriously, it's the highlight of my week hearing from you, and sometimes it leads to really cool things. I'm at, again, americaadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, again, check out the website at americadaps.org. All this information is in my show notes for those of you who are looking on your smartphones, and the donate page is there too. Again, please consider supporting the podcast. I will be going on location more in the coming year, and it requires ongoing support from all of you. I hope you consider donating. You can do a recurring donation or a one-time donation. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.